I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Millennial Property with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. Today we are answering all your questions. You put it out on the Facebook group. Thank you for sending them through. We're going to answer as many as we can, Emily. Today we're talking principal place of residence. Should we convert it into an investment? Should we sell it? Uh, we've got 40 acres just out of Brisbane. What are we doing with that? Are we, are we building on it? Are we going elsewhere? Should we build a duplex? The pros and cons of that and, and a heap more. So excited to answer all these questions. Let's get into it. Emily. Yes. Eliza says, is it ideal to change a principal place of residence into an investment property when looking at a new principal place of residence? What are the pros and cons or just avoid that idea? Now, I don't know about you, but I must get this question asked at least once a week. This is one of the most common questions and there's so many factors that go into it, but I think fundamentally understanding your over- arching property goals and how financially you need to get there is really key because structures come into this as well in terms of do you leverage the equity? Do you sell the property? Do you buy another investment property and your PPR? There's so many different avenues to go down. And so it's actually not a one size fits all with the answer, to be honest, but we could talk about the different options that people would have if they're considering this question themselves. Absolutely. And, and I spoke briefly in a episode I did solo it's probably dropped by now, so check it out. But we need to be thinking about our lifestyle, don't we, and, and what we want long-term. You spoke about the property goals. We need to understand our, our, our wealth creation goals but also our lifestyle goals. And I, and I think the big one when it comes to this is if you've got a mortgage on two properties – what's the cash flow in your life going to be like? So if we convert this principal place of residence to an investment – what's the rent going to be and what's the before tax and after tax position on that property aside from our new principal place of residence? A really key question to know the answer to, I think. I think the point about cash flow there is something that is underestimated big time. People often focus about, I want to make so much money, I'm going to you know, buy something for 500K and it's going to sell for a mil in 10 years. And it's like, that's all well and good. But if you actually can't support your lifestyle and fund potentially a gap between, you know, rental income versus mortgage repayments and outgoings, then there might not be much joy in your life. Do you know what I mean? Like, can you do extra activities? Can you go on holidays? Can you eat out? Um, It's a fundamental thing that people actually are quick to dismiss, but can find themselves in a bit of a pickle if they don't understand the complexity of it. Absolutely. And and I think Eliza... Looking at building your portfolio, you've got one property, you're looking to get a second. Ideally, we never want to sell properties, but if it's at the expense of your lifestyle, um, some questions need to be asked. So if it's just yourself, you, you ask yourself. If it's uh, if you've got a partner, then we sit down together and, and we flesh through what our highest values are and what we want out of the next five to 10 years. An interesting one is that if, if someone's held their principal place of residence for quite some time, 
usually their sole focus is to do what? Pay it down. So mm. they've paid a massive chunk off this property only to then turn around, rent it out, and it's now cash flow positive, you could actually be paying tax on the cash flow of that property. So that's the other end of the spectrum where it's not costing you money out of your pocket, but it's costing you in paying extra tax, okay? So mm. that's where we if, we, if we step back for the moment, before we actually bought that property, we're also thinking about what do we want in 10 years' time? And are we, is this our forever home? And if it's not, do we not focus on paying it down as much? We might just have the money sitting in the offset. So if we're going to buy our, our upgrader, our upgrade principal place of residence, we've got that cash sitting in the offset to take out and then all of a sudden we've got good tax deductible debt in the form of our new investment property. And I think one thing we know to be true, John, is when it comes to growth in areas, the yes, some you know, the general rule is some property doubling every 10 years, but that majority of that could actually come in a 12-month, 24-month window. So I would be asking the question, how long have we owned our current place of residence? And has it actually peaked to a degree that it kind of makes sense to sell out now beyond the cash flow equation? Determining whether to sell the property or to keep it can also fundamentally come down to, is it going to sit stagnant and could our money be better spent elsewhere? Or do we need to actually hold a little bit longer to see that growth that we would expect? Yeah, so you get that diversification, don't you? If you if you do sell the property, number one, it's if you've been living in it all the whole time, it's capital gains tax free. So the money's in your pocket minus the agent's fees and whatever else. Uh, but then you get to take that money and put it into a new diversified market and, and to then keep a lower mortgage on your principal place of residence, which is is a great outcome, isn't it? And then you can almost treat this as phase two. You say, well, phase one was buy my PPOR and then it's been a great result. So now I get to upgrade that and, and live in maybe a better location or a better dwelling. Then I can resume my investing and, and draw some equity out of that uh, once the dust settled and, and build a portfolio that way. Just a quick point and learning on the logistics of what you've just touched on, John, with the place being capital gains tax free because it's your PPR. Um, something I learned recently and because I'd never really encountered it before because we work with so many first-term buyers, not necessarily upsizers. We had a case, and I think this is really interesting for people to learn, where someone actually went and bought their upsizer before selling their current property. So they've gone and technically if they settle their new house first, they, they kind of got two houses at once. There is actually, it's simply a form and an application you can submit to the tax office to explain that your original home that you owned is sitting vacant while it's being sold and you're not actually occupying two houses at once and therefore you do avoid the capital gain tax because you're not having to nominate just one as your PPR. So just a logistics thing to be across because otherwise you could see the tax bill on this one that we were looking at that was in question was going to be um, for the land tax for that year was 8000 and then the capital gain would have been obviously a lot more than that. Right. So yeah, you, you can actually, there's a little loophole there or at least you know an application to make so you're not doubling up on tax unnecessarily. So how long had they lived in that particular property? This was actually the vendor or the property that we bought and they'd been there for like 20 years. Okay. So, but that, yeah. for those 20 years, it'd be CJT free, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it still was because then, so they lived in that property for 20 years, yeah. went and bought another property. That next property settled 
and that was then nominated as their PPR while they still had to sell their 20-year-old home. And so to get that wavered and say we're only technically living in one property, they just had to fill out an application to the government um, or ATO to get it wavered. Just filling out forms. Good. Yeah, we love paperwork. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Eliza, great problem to have because we've got an asset that's that's made us money, it's grown in value. Now we're upgrading to maybe, I don't want to say forever home, but it's a, maybe it's a better house or better condition or better location or whatever it might be. One problem I see a lot of people run into with this scenario is using equity from that first property because they're taught to hold their properties and never sell them. But we're using equity to buy our principal place of residence upgrade. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is we're paying interest on the equity as well as the loan. So essentially, plus the stamp duty. So we're paying interest on 102% of the property um, price that we purchase. Now, why is that a bad thing? Well, it's non-tax deductible because you're living in it and it's not income producing. And our goal is to pay down our bad debt that's not income producing, right? So we're starting at 102% versus saying, right, if I sold my principal place of residence um, today, that first one, I take my, I don't know, 400,000 and I place that down as my 20 or 30% deposit or, or we're going to reduce that new debt on our principal place. I think that's that's a big part to play when we're looking at our decision making. Certainly. And it makes those repayments more manageable if you're, you know, 102% of a loan is, that's a very high mortgage. It is. That's very highly leveraged. And, you know, some people would lose sleep over that. I think, yeah, to try and minimize the outgoings on your mortgage and try and pay it down as quickly as possible mm. is an ideal situation for many. Yeah, so there's there's never usually a one size fits all and, and we a few cliches. We can't have our cake and eat it, Emily, but we can definitely get a version that's going to be right for us if we look down the pros and cons column to, uh, to realise what we want out of our life, both financially and from a lifestyle perspective. Yeah, and I think a key part of this is also uh, having some expert and independent advice on board when making these decisions. You're not supposed to know what the right decision is or to know all the ins and outs of what you should be considering in your decision making. Obviously, there's certainly value in having an advisor of some sort, whether that comes, there's an element of financial advice in it because you're talking about long-term, you know, cash flow and all those sorts of things. But as you alluded to, John, you get asked this question almost every week. And I assume that comes through majority of your clarity calls of people finding themselves in a situation and going, what do I do? And not even knowing, you know, what questions to necessarily ask or consider because it's the first time they've entered this situation. So, yeah, don't um, be afraid to reach out for help when you need it because uh, it could be a very costly mistake if you don't understand all the ins and outs. Yeah, and, and generally it's family and friends that are giving this uh, sort of advice or or mm. throwing their two cents in and, and sometimes it's, it's misguided. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, so thank you, Eliza. Okay, Josh says, other than the obvious extra payments and interest hit, why should you save 10% and stamp duty in cash before buying each investment property? Would it not be more beneficial to get into the market sooner, if lenders allow this, and make use of capital gains, noting interest charged is tax deductible rather than saving for longer for the bigger deposit? 
Oh, okay. Now, yep. I, I think what Josh is saying here is why not use equity as opposed to saving the cash for your next investment property? Yeah, because you can probably grow equity faster than your savings rate for most people, most depending on, on the, how well your property's performing. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, Josh, that's a very good question. And personally, actually, I've done it once. I think I've paid cash for a deposit on an investment property once over my 25-year journey and the rest has been equity um, because as you alluded to, the interest charge is tax deductible rather than saving for longer for the bigger deposit. Uh, for, for me, it was a no-brainer using the bank's money um, to continue to grow the portfolio and leverage. However, when we're using equity, it's a loan, people. We're, it, we're getting it from the bank. It's a it's a paper value of the asset you own. They're taking that chunk and saying, yes, you can use that for your deposit for this next property. However, you're going to pay us interest on that. So it just means it's not free. And some people un, unusually think it is, but it's not. So we're paying interest on that. It, may, it increases your repayments and that means that we need to really look closely at our cash flow of our portfolio, uh, especially in times where we have 13 interest rate rises in a row. Yeah, which I can't believe that's even a sentence, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think this fundamentally comes back to the ability to hold the portfolio and manage the cash flow versus it is so hard to save for a deposit, honestly. Like people's savings rates are never ridiculously high. So knowing the numbers, and I think when you're getting rental appraisals in particular, when you're looking at investment properties and you're getting those rental appraisals, don't rely on the rental appraisal just from the selling agent because theirs is probably going to look better than everybody else's to entice you to buy it as an investor. Like get an independent property manager who actually can assess it for its true, you know, per week rate, because that's the number. And you'd be taking a conservative number as well as allowing for vacancy um, during the year for changeover, maintenance fund, all that sort of thing. It's not a simple equation, really. No, it's not. And and just on the rental appraisal, make sure you get two or three or four. Like don't just get one appraisal because a lot of property managers will just will want your business and they'll hike the rent amount per week up in, in a hope that they may get it win your business and then realise it's actually $50 a week less and you've based your whole calculations around trusting their appraisal. Mm. So get a second, third, fourth opinion. Just a little bit of nitpicking here. Um, When I read the question and Josh says making use of the capital gains, we're not actually making a capital gain at that time, right? We haven't, a, a capital gain is when you sell the property. We're actually releasing the equity out and still owning the property is what Josh is alluding to there. So yeah, we're using the equity as a result of the bank coming back or a valuer coming back and saying, look, we think this is 100,000 w- uh, more than what you paid for it. This is your loan amount times the value by 80% minus your debt and here is your equity provided you have enough servicing via your income in your life and no bad debts and credit cards and all these things, you can take that equity out. Yeah, which I think makes sense in the, as we kind of, these are good questions to go in secrets because we're talking about doesn't really make sense when it's your own home because it's not tax deductible, but when it's an investment, it does. I know I've used that strategy myself and have been very happy to do so because it's just fast tracked the portfolio and many investors do use that strategy. Yeah. When we spoke about 
12, 13 interest rate rises, by the way, historically speaking, if you've joined us for the first time ever today and you're very new to property, we don't expect 12 to 13 rate rises any time in the next, well, I think personally in the next 10 years, right? It's just something that's it was unforeseen the last 50 years to be able to see something be down so low interest rate wise and then just creep up so dramatically. All right, let's take a break and then we'll come back with more of your cues. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. 
historics and maybe what mum and dad used to do or what they've told you to do. I think we need to work out what our own personality determines there. I'm with you though. Like you generally, and the, the, I suppose the climate's changed a little bit in lending land where there is a lot more occupations that qualify for no LMI, isn't it? To the point where some are like 95% no LMI, which is outrageous. So do we put down 5% or, or 10% no LMI and have a larger loan but have an extra 100, 150K sitting in an offset account? I think we both agree that that's what we, we would both do, but also it's not for everyone because the repayments are going to be higher as a result, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And it, I think it comes back to your serviceability on the loan and looking at you know, what you actually need to survive off because, yeah, higher loan, higher repayments. It's just, mm. yeah, that's the way it goes. I'm personally putting as little cash as possible. And, and again, stating the obvious, if you've got a 100K sitting in your offset account against that debt, your repayments are still the same each month. It's just that there's less interest charged daily, monthly, therefore you're paying down more of the principal. So just understand that the repayments will, will still be the same regardless of your money in the offset. A, a bit of a side note there for, for anyone listening out there, check with your broker or your bank uh, whether your occupation qualifies because this is changing a lot. I don't know if you've seen this, Emily, but the, the occupations coming and going to, to say, yeah, you actually qualify for 10% no LMI, like that's literally a game changer for, for owner ox, isn't it? Big time and because, yeah, to save 20% deposit is quite challenging mm. but 10% plus LMI, you know, could be achievable for some but purely just a 10% even looking, you know, down a guarantor, avenue as well yeah. is a lot more doable and could you need to know your options and having a good broker on board is absolutely key yeah it is i love a parental guarantor mm. yeah just a great Don't we bit all? of assistance <laughs> that i never had <laughs> <laughs> okay tara we have a 40 acre property close to town good amenities etc 40 minutes from briz vegas we have about 500k in equity would you go and buy an investment property or we have been exploring the option of building an auxiliary dwelling on the 40 acres, so a, a second dwelling, Oh yeah, I believe. I'm glad that you specified that because <laughs> I was like, that what? Sorry? An auxiliary. <laughs> uh, we have worked out the dwelling would be around 150 to 200K to build and rental estimate of about $400 per week. So I'm thinking it's like a granny flat of some description yeah, at that say, price. Yeah, cheap build. <laughs> Otherwise, I want the name of your builder. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, great position to be in 40 acres, unbelievable, right? It's huge. <laughs> so, I wonder if it's in a position where it would ever be um, sold off for, you know, proper like land development subdivision, like a Greenfields estate or if it's yes. more just like, you know, not designed for that because obviously the flatter the land, the better for that sort of thing. Yeah, I'd be keeping an eye on the zoning and talking to a town planner aside from the mm. question, right, it, um, and just seeing what's going on over the next five to ten years because land, they're not making any more of it. I'd also put some sheep on there or some goats or something <laughs> like just to get some extra income. Might sound silly but fix the fences up and, and get some extra income from that as 40 acres is quite desirable. I would imagine yeah. 40 minutes from Brizzy for someone. The downsides of putting a granny flat on is 
you're tying up more money in the one asset, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, same location as well. You're not diversifying. You're not diversifying. So these 40 acres that you've got, Tara, they're always going to be there. So you can put a granny flat on at any stage. And by the look of it, if it costs you 200 and you're getting $400 a week in rent, right, that's going to be positive cash flow. So you might just look at it from a cash flow perspective saying, this cash I could really do with right now. So I'm going to go and do it and totally respect that. And that would be uh, still a good outcome. Have versus saying, well, how much can we lend in equity, which we said 500K, we could go and take that and put it into a another dwelling somewhere around the country. Don't know where it is, but we could come up with a strategy and say, look, we go and do this and the cash flow requirements or the yield requirements are factored in. And then we can wheel back around and put the granny flat on after that. I'd be talking to the broker and saying, if we had a plan of attack that says, I want an investment property somewhere else, as well as the granny flat, could I do both? Because that would be unreal. Or is it one or the other? Certainly because building costs, I think are only going to go up as well. If you've got that price secured for a granny flat and the returns there are that 400 per week. That sounds like my mind from a cash flow perspective goes, how many granny flats can you build? You know, <laughs> like if that's a sort of return, but then as we touched on putting all your risk in one location, one asset, one place, probably not advisable in the long term. but I think it really does depend how much money you can borrow with the equity sitting there as to what else that could return you. Yeah. And understand your servicing, for, for Tara as well in her life, but yeah. also what's happening in the next three to five years for her. Is she, I don't know, for example, wanting to start a family, would that extra cash flow from the granny flat come in handy versus another 500k property somewhere else where she's not going to get probably that cash flow from that property, but she might be getting some growth? Well, that doesn't help her if she needs to go back to work quicker because of the lack of cash flow. So yeah, I think I'd be thinking about what's happening five to 10 years uh, in in advance, uh, but know that the 40 acre scenario, you'll always have the ability to go and do that second dwelling, according to council anyway, um, at any time because uh, you, you already own it, which is which is a great position to be in. The question that keeps popping up, and it's a forever ending question, is why is a vendor's reserve at auction above? the asking quote range. And this is Victoria somewhat specific because we do have quote ranges. We have to have them. So, you know, let's do a worked example. 700,000 to 750,000 is the quote range. It goes to auction. And for some reason, it's not called on the market and selling until 800,000. And everyone's up in arms because, you know, the vendor is being greedy and false advertising, this, that, and the other. There needs to be a fundamental understanding that the vendors on market price, their reserve price legally, and this is where it's really silly, but legally does not have to be in the quote range provided. Someone can want any figure for their house. They could quote what the market value is and then want an extra million dollars on top of that. They might not get it, but they could want it. And so um, it's an often a misconception that Underquoting is because the vendor wants more money than what they're advertising it for, when actually that's not the definition of underquoting. Underquoting is when you have recent sales that show the property is worth more 
in the market value than what the agent has quoted. So I just wanted to clarify that because it's a real misconception in real estate and uh, almost every Saturday I get someone message me on Instagram, this happened, I can't believe it, you know, underquoting. It's like, no, it's not underquoting. It's an unrealistic vendor. They're two different things. I'm very passionate about this. You point. are, I can tell. I can, <laughs> the fierceness in your voice, Emma. So w- let's go to the underquoting business. How yes. How is someone proven guilty of doing that and does it happen much in Victoria? It happens less now because there was actually a task force set out to uh, combat underquoting. Anyone in the general public can report an underquote if they see a property that's got a quote range that seems like it's just way too cheap and there's been recent sales that suggest it's you know worth a lot more, then the basis for being charged with underquoting is that the agent hasn't provided like-for-like properties mm. in their statement of information, which is the document they attach to the property to show the quote range, and then consumer affairs would investigate yeah. if it should be higher. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've seen a lot of values in my time that underquote. <laughs> mm, <laughs> that's an interesting my, one. <laughs> under undervalue my properties and their comparables are terrible. Uh, in any case, side note. Shame is not fines for that one. Yeah, that's right. Uh yeah, they're protecting their license, aren't they? Hello to all the yeah. good valuers out there. Okay, so it's really important to understand if you're going to auction just Get, getting a feeling of this um, this process and and the research required before you turn up to auction day, isn't it? Like looking at the contracts and looking at the comparable sales that the agents used. Even though there's no price on there to say this is what we think it's worth, there is you there is a guide, isn't there? Yeah, certainly. And the other factor that is very hard to measure until the day is a common situation that plays out is the vendor is on market maybe just over the top end of the quote range. Let's say it was quoted up to $750. they are on market at like $770. Mm. And then the property sells for $850. Now, the gap between $770 and $850 is purely buyer demand because once it's called on the market, even $1,000 more, they have to knock it down and sell the property. Mm. So that big gap there tells you, hang on a second, vendor's willing to sell at $770, but the buyers are willing to buy it for eight fifty. This must be a really in-demand property or a type of property that people really want and will bid high for. And therefore, maybe what I'm looking for is a popular property type, and I'm really going to have to fight to get what I want. So, at risk of paying too much to for it, what do we do? The biggest thing is to set a limit. Um, I harp on about this all the time, set a limit going into the auction, don't make a decision in the moment. But also I think being strategic in uh, looking at potentially a pre-auction offer or trying to become friends with the agents to get some off markets with limited competition um, is always a good strategy as well. Yeah, it can be really challenging out there when everybody wants A-grade property and you're just seeing them you know, fly well beyond vendors' expectations. Yeah, because because you like you would go to more auctions than private treaty, wouldn't you? As a as a rule, how many? What what would be your ratio of auctions versus buying um, private? Actually, our auctions are only about thirty percent. Oh, right. um, because we it's because we buy so much off market yeah, sure. for clients, but we will always participate in an auction if a client has budget in the quote range, mm. just in case. But majority of the time, it actually pays to be the underbidder, so the person who missed out, show that you're a realistic buyer, yeah. and then go and call the agent on the Monday and say, "Hey, I just missed out on this property at X amount. Mm. What else have what you, you got? got?" And that actually gets you most of the time a better result. Yeah, yeah. We don't do a lot of auctions. We did win one last week in yeah. Palm Beach though, which was oh. nice. Mm. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Mm. Well done. That that's good. so cool. Were you bidding? 
Luke, our BA in Brisbane, was bidding on uh, yep. on our client's behalf, so that was pretty exciting wow. for them. Mm. It's such an emotion. Like it's, I love auctions. Yeah, but like winning them is the best. The sold sticker. Yes. The clients. Yeah. The champagne. It's a good feeling, uh, but then this feeling for me never goes away. It's like, okay, I just won that. Did I pay too much for that? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. So um, you, when you know you didn't, but you, there's still that feeling, isn't it? It's like, oh, okay. It's mine. Mm. It's good to win it by a little. It is. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So there we go. Uh, Awesome questions today, people. Thank you for sending those in. And, yeah, as always, um, put them into the Facebook group um, or just message us direct if you want any of your questions answered. We won't get to them all, but we'll try our very best. And if you're a listener and you're also an expert, in a field that's related to property, like maybe you're someone in sustainability or architecture or town planning Mm. or something that's related to property that you think our listeners would find beneficial to hear about. Always keen to hear what experts people want on board on the show. We always try and find external people to talk about their professions. So um, let us know. We always love hearing from you. Yeah, reach out. And even if you've, you've got a cool story that's sort of out of the box for property investing, happy to to get you on uh, or you know someone that be a a good match for us um yeah always good to get some interesting stuff on uh all right that's uh, that's it for today emily indeed until next week have a good week ahead enjoy We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Career, My Millennial Money, My Millennial Daily and Retire Right. Find these wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 